Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, sermon title this morning is Justified to be Adopted. Justified to be Adopted. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, I don't want to miss how wonderful it is that we get to call you Father. As we talk about adoption today, I pray that this would be a sweet time where we think about your fatherhood over us. For the fathers in the room, I pray that we would learn fatherhood from you. I thank you that every Christian has the best father in the world. Help us right now as we get into your word. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that you're going to. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. J.I. Packer says this, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. That comes from his chapter on adoption in the book Knowing God. And I'll never forget that line. It's the first sentence in the chapter. Justification is the doctrine that we've been talking about over and over again, week in and week out, through the book of Galatians. How can a man be right with God? How can you be right with God? Is it through salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, or is it faith and works? Is it Christ plus circumcision? And we've been talking about justification over and over again. Today, we're talking about adoption. Now, these two doctrines are really crucial. It's crucial that we understand these together. Holding justification and adoption together is critically, critically important. What happens if we fail to hold onto both doctrines? And I think you can see this based on emphasis, depending upon what church you've been in or what background you have. There's either a high emphasis on justification or a high emphasis on adoption, but rarely do you see these two doctrines held together in the way God would have us. Justification without adoption can lead to a static and impersonal understanding of God. If you understand justification and imputation of righteousness, that God the Father looks down upon you and sees the work of Christ on your behalf, and you stay there, that's glorious, it's the central doctrine of the Christian faith, But if you stay there, you never get to this or rarely get to this doctrine of adoption, the fact that you are a child of God. You'll be firm in your understanding of forgiveness, but you will know little to nothing of sonship. Now, when other people talk about a relationship with God or a relationship with their Heavenly Father and the experience of being loved by their Heavenly Father, it's going to sound a little bit weird. Now, adoption without justification, where there's heavy emphasis on, I'm a child of the King, I'm a child of God... Adoption without justification is impossible and frightening. Adoption without justification is impossible and frightening. So many Christians who understand that they're a son or daughter of God, yet if they know little of justification, they're going to be terrified of their heavenly father or think that their heavenly father is pleased with them one day and not pleased with them the next day. Because they're going to think that their standing with God is based on their relationship with God and not the fixed 
fixed understanding of justification. So the danger of this mistake is that you become a person who's always afraid of your Heavenly Father, even though you know you're a child of God. For you, for that person, security is only as solid as today's performance or as weak as today's failure. Now, for the Christian, we have both. We have justification and adoption, and these are very important, crucial theological categories. They're, they're important to every single day life. It's critical. Knowing God as Father is not something that's only for a few Christians. It's for every single Christian. And I'd say for, if I was to assess our church, we would probably lean more into understanding justification more than adoption. And I could be wrong on that, and there's probably exceptions, but we... We love the doctrine of justification, and we're always going to love the doctrine of justification. The fact that I, am, I have assurance of my salvation right now. I don't have to wait. I can know that I am saved. I can know that I'm born again. I can know that I am in right relationship with my heavenly Father. I can know right now that I'm right with God. But then there's this thing called adoption, and I think there's room for all of us in both of these theological categories to grow. But I think today could be a really special day for many of you. This week has been a special week for me. It's for all of us. Go ahead and look at verse 1 and 2 in chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now one thing we have to keep in mind is that this is a continuing argument from last week's verses. The verses we looked in chapter 3 as we finished that chapter last, last week. It's a continuing argument for the Apostle Paul. And what we need to be reminded of is that those who belong to Christ are heirs according to the promise. We are inheritors of all things. But we have to think about the difference between an heir and one another, the significance and what the big deal is about being an heir. We looked a little bit about that last week. But the heir and the slave, as Paul begins to bring in the slave language, the heir and the slave, as they are children, are going to be treated in the same way. And by the way, in the context of an ancient home, and even in the Christian home in the New Testament, the slave child was to be treated the same as the child child. Not mistreated, but to be treated with dignity. The household, the slave children, and the children of the father are the same when they're young. With the exception of a pretty big and important detail, the heir is the inheritor of everything while the slave child is not. The heir is the owner of everything. And one day when the date set by the father arrives, the heir will no longer be on the, under the guardians and the managers of the estate. They will be the owners of everything. So in that same way, verse 3, we see this uh, unfolded for us. In the same way, we also, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Enslaved. So in the same way that that heir, who is to be inheritor of everything, was under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father, in the same way, before Christ came, he's going to compare these two things, before Christ came, the people of God were under those guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So when we were children... Paul's saying we were enslaved to the elementary spirits or principles of, of the world. So elementary principles means the law without further or mature revelation of Christ. Elementary principles, different commentators say several different things about this, but I think the most consensus is that the elemental principles means the law without further or mature revelation of Christ. And 
this audience and Paul himself, they were in a very unique situation that many of them were alive pre-Christ, alive during Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and then were alive post-Pentecost. And they were alive during this transition period from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Now for us, the comparisons that we're going to make and that he makes here in a minute, are going to be pre-Christ days, post-Christ days. We are n- never in our life had we ever lived pre-Christ, like in historical timeline. But we all have lived pre-Christ when it comes to when we were saved. So our relationship to the law was different before we were a Christian and after we are a Christian. So we're going to have to make some comparisons here. John Stott says this, God intended the law to reveal sin and drive men to Christ. Satan used it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses the law as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage there is no escape. So even though they experienced Christ in history, we have experienced Jesus in our lifetime in that uniquely different way. We know what it was like, unless you were saved as a really young child, which I was. Many of you were saved a little bit older, and you know the the marked difference. We talked about this two weeks ago, that your life was pre-Christ and post-Christ. And whether you remember it or not, your relationship to the law was different pre-Christ and post-Christ, even if you were converted when you were a child. Now notice in this passage, if you look at verse 3, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This language of slavery gets brought in and it's applied to every single person pre-Christ, enslaved. When we think about being enslaved, the imagery of slavery and redemption is brought to our mind about Egypt and Israel, God's people being in Israel, or in Egypt, and being under the, the, the slavery, or in slavery in Egypt. And when you think about a, a slave, or Israel, and their slave history, you have to remember that for 400 years, they were enslaved by one of the most powerful nations in the world, and they were absolutely powerless to get out of it. They, they couldn't do anything to get out of it. Israel had no way of escape. They couldn't just at any time walk out of there and say, hey, peace out, Pharaoh, we're going to go. We're going to go into the promised land. This is our time, and we're going to plunder you along the way, by the way. That wouldn't have been allowed. They were completely, completely at the mercy of God. If they were going to escape slavery, then it had to be that God was going to redeem them out of there. God would have to do something, and he did. Likewise, everyone under the law without Christ is equally enslaved and powerless to get out of it. They cannot make themselves free. Nobody who is under the law of God makes themselves free under that law. You are enslaved. You're in bondage. Every part of your being, your body and your soul, or your body, soul, and spirit in complete slavery to the elementary principles of the world. You cannot get yourself out. You need God to do something for you. And God's done something. Like God who did something when Israel was a slave, he has done something for us when we were in slavery. 
Now, look at this timeline, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So here's the timeline. They were enslaved until the elementary principles, until the fullness of time had come that God had set forth. God determines the times and the seasons, and his purposes are set by his decree. And at the right exact time, Christmas happened. At the right exact time. Now, if I was going to set the timeline of Christmas, or even the timeline of the Incarnation, I would set it up sometime after air conditioning was invented, and sometime before cell phones and the internet were, were invented. Jordan and I were talking about how great life would be if there were no cell phones and no internet. Can we get an amen? amen. Right? Remember that? I mean, you could do a task, finish that task, and if you were outside, nobody could call you. Or if you heard the, you know, the phone ring, like, hey, Rance, go get the phone. Run, run. So that, that's what I would have picked it. I would have picked the timeline, the right time to be post-air conditioning, pre-internet and cell phone. That's a good, like 1978 or so, somewhere in there. But that was not the right time. The right time was 2,000 years ago. That was the time set forth by God the Father. And God sent forth his son, born of a woman, so this baby would be the son of God and the son of man, fully God and fully human. Ransom, help me out again. What's that mean? The hypostatic union. Every once, once a year or so we get that word in. <laughs> fully God and fully man, born of a woman, fully man, son of God, fully God, Born under the law, so the same law that those of the Old Testament were under, and the same law that you and I were under pre-Christ, Jesus was born under. He was born under that law. Born under that law, he was required to obey that law in the same way that we are required to obey that law. There were laws given by God from Israel, or to Israel, and those laws were given to Israel, and many of those laws we're all, we're included for all of the world. Like everybody is under the moral law of God. And they're held to account, Jew and Gentile alike. And Jesus was born under that very law. And required to obey that, obey that law as the God-man. Fully God and fully man. He did it all for a reason. And I just read it. Verse 5a. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem I love this language because we hear slavery and redemption. And this is what all of God's people would have looked back on. And they would have immediately, immediately thought about Israel. They would have thought about the Passover and the Passover of the Lamb and the blood over the door. They would have thought about God miraculously bringing his people out of Israel. So this, this imagery of, of what God has done at the exact right time would have brought them to that about the powerful God rescuing them from their slavery. Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. We were all under the law. Everybody, every single man, woman, or child who's ever been born, ever lived throughout the whole world under the law. The law is here. We were under it. Jesus, the God-man, was born under it, and he was born under that law to redeem those who were also under that law. And he came and he obeyed the law perfectly. He, as we were enslaved by it, Jesus thrived by it. He obeyed it perfectly. He showed us the glory of it. He did it. He was enslaved to his Father's will for his own good and your own good. 
Jesus showed us the freedom that is obedience to the Heavenly Father. The freedom that is trusting our Heavenly Father. The freedom that is surrendering our will, even in a moment of despair. Not my will, but your will be done. And unifying our will with our Father's will. Jesus shows us how beautiful that is, and he did it on all on our behalf. Jesus was born under the law and obeyed that law for lawbreakers. As we were all breaking this law, all sinning against a holy God, Jesus comes, born under that same law, obeying it for the very people who are breaking his law. He obeyed it perfectly so that we could be redeemed. God himself doing this for you and declaring to the world, this man is not guilty, he is counted holy and righteous in my sight. There's glory in justification. There's glory in redemption. How amazing it is to be born again, to be rescued from Egypt, that we would be rescued not just from Egypt, but rescued from the very wrath of a loving and a holy God. In the same way, it was impossible for those that were enslaved in Egypt to get out of the mess. It was impossible for us to get out of the mess. The law was here and we just kept being enslaved by it and kept being enslaved by it and kept being enslaved by it. Kept breaking God's law, kept breaking God's law, kept breaking God's law. And yet Jesus came and said, okay, I'm going to do it. And there's glory in it. We were pulled out of our sin, pulled out of that. And he, God himself set our feet upon the rock and declared that we are not guilty of being a lawbreaker. Because Jesus died in the, in the place of lawbreakers. We are redeemed. And if that's not enough, as if that's not enough, there's more. We're redeemed, pulled out of sin, the power of sin broken in our lives, the declaration of God coming down upon us that you are not guilty and counted righteous, and it's a fixed declaration. It's not, a one, it's not like a, you're declared righteous today and then maybe not tomorrow. You're declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And if that's not glorious enough, we're told that that was done for a reason. Look at 5b. To redeem those who are under the law so that redemption, which includes justification, so that we might become or we might receive adoption as sons. So that we might receive adoption as sons. What is the purpose of redemption? so that we might become sons of God. Jesus redeemed us for a bigger reason than simply getting right with God. Now, it's not simple to be right with God. It costs Jesus very life, death, and resurrection. But you are redeemed into a family. You are redeemed to be a child of God. God sent Jesus so that we'll be that we would be brought into the family of God and be able to seat, sit at the very table of God so that we would have God as Father. Again, J.I. Packer says this, that justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future is the primary, primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. So justification is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel Justification is the primary because it means and meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because 
we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of our restored relationship with God. More than we need anything else in the world. And this is what the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. You can be justified. You can be right with God. But here's what Packer says. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea. It's a family idea. Conceived in terms of love. And viewing God as Father. In in adoption, God takes us into His family and into His fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To To be right with God as judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. You might say, well, Jared, my dad was bad. I don't want to think of God that way. Many people have said that, especially in the last 20 years. Just hear that from me. Hear this from me. That's really silly. It's really silly. You may have had a bad dad. And you may have had no dad at all. But God is not like your father at all. God is not like your father. It's silly to confuse your father with your heavenly father. And you can psychoanalyze that all you want. But it's silly. God is better than your father. Even if you had the best father in the world. And you can know that and experience that. He's a father that sent his son to rescue you, a rebel, who had sinned against him day in and day out. You were his enemy. And you may have been his enemy through moralism. You may have been his enemy through open rebellion. But you were his enemy. And we live in a father-centered world. Everyone is affected by a bad father or an absent father. People are affected by a good father. But this doctrine is so glorious because we can know we have the best father in all the world. He's the father we've always longed for. And every other father in this world is to learn their fatherhood from God. We don't look to fathers and say, oh, God's like that father there. It's a big mistake. It's an upside down way of learning about God and fatherhood. We don't look to the fathers of this world and say, well, fathers of this world are like this, therefore God's like that. No, we say, God the Father is like this, therefore that's how I'm going to father. That's how my father should have fathered. So you had a bad dad, so you had no dad, but you do now. You have a father. And he's the God of the universe, in charge of all things, and he has called you by name. That is good news. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons. 
there is a, a popular idea that's been around for a very long time that everybody in the world is a son or a daughter of God. That we're all God's children. And there is a sense that we are all made and created by the God of the universe. We did not evolve. We didn't just happen. That is absolutely ludicrous. That's what suppressing the truth looks like, saying that mankind is, is highly evolved. It's pressing down the truth. It's logic that's used nowhere else in the world. Did this pulpit make itself? Of course not. There's complexity to design. God made you, but not every single person is a child of God. This truth of the fatherhood of God is only, only, only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only Christians are sons and daughters of God. And this is the warning to the world. Heaven is not by way of being born into this world. Having God as your father, you don't get to that point simply by being born into this world. You have to be born again. And if you're born again, if you are redeemed, then you get this great privilege of not simply having your sins forgiven, but being a child of God, having a place at his table, Remember that audio adrenaline song from like 1997, Big Big House? Everybody remember that? Casey Claude remembers it. <laughs> we sing that sometimes. It's a silly song. You know, you listen back to it and like, man, why did people like audio A? But they did. <laughs> why did they not like audio A? <laughs> Kathy says. They're just a DC Talk knockoff. DC Talk was a Beastie Boys knockoff, so... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it was like Beastie Boys slash Nirvana knockoff. Yeah. Like if you look, listen to Jesus Freak and then smells like Teen Spirit, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> right? I mean, think some of you are like, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> We're told because you are sons, God has done something else. Because this it doesn't just stop at adoption. God does something for all of his sons of daughters. Everyone else is an enemy of God. But for the children of God, he calls us his sons and daughters. But what else does he do? He sends his spirit, the spirit of his son's son, into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. This should make a charismatic out of everyone. <laughs> the one charismatic in here. All right. No. And again, I said it last week, I know that we're on different, different parts, that there's differing views on that. But here's what we all agree on. Every one of us agree that the Spirit of God indwells the people of God. That we're supernatural people. We are not natural human beings. We have been brought from death to life. God has done something to us that is no less miraculous, and in fact, it's far more miraculous than us or Israel walking out of Egypt. We walked out of sin and death. Every single one of us. That is a miracle. That is a testimony. That was an impossibility unless God did something for you. He sat you at his table, and then he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And the Holy Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Now this, many of you know this, the word for Abba in Hebrew is 
A word that a son would speak to his father. It's personal. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus cries out to Abba, Father. The word's used three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8 is the other time. And the idea that's communicated here is that in, 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 this, in a better way, in a higher way, if you can imagine the most loving earthly father ever, and crying out a son to a, a father, Father, this, this is the access that we get, not just to God, to the judge of the universe, who's sovereign over all things, over everything, who has all authority. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Every blade of grass in this whole world belongs to God, the God of the universe. He owns everything. Satan and demons are not in charge of this earth. They are in charge of the way of the world, which is in opposition to God. But they are not sovereign in this world. They are chained and limited by the God of the universe. Satan is a defeated foe. And that God of the universe with all authority is your heavenly Father. Under the law, we cannot approach Him. Under the law, in His presence, we would be dead and condemned. But with redemption and with sonship, with the Holy Spirit within us, we come to Him and we cry out, Abba, Father. We can come to Him as sons and as daughters. We don't have to tremble in His presence in the same way as we would have before. We have access to the throne of grace. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. We, we pull on the coat. Dad. You know the sound of your children. You know that your children have access to you that other children don't. This is the particular aim of the love of God that's seen everywhere. Your children have privileges that other, kids, other people's children don't have. Other people's children aren't your children. Only your children are your children. It's pretty easy. Only God's children are God's children. And he knows their voice. And they know his voice. And we have the Holy Spirit at work in our life crying out in times where we, where we don't even feel His presence, but we know I'm a child of God. I know I belong to Him. Because this is deeply experiential. The Christian life is what old theologians called experimental. Experimental, not just experiential, but experiential. Experiential, not exper exper experimental theology. We experience the God of the universe. We have a relationship with him. Relationship with the God of the universe is not justification. The gospel message isn't come, you can have a relationship with God. There's no hope there. Well, how good is your relationship going to be? How bad is it going to be? What if it's going really bad, but another day it's going really good? That is not a firm foundation to land on. The good news of the gospel is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then the welcome, the privilege of those who have been justified and have that firm foundation. We do experience a relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
That is not the ground and that is not our standing, but we do experience that. What is your experience with your Heavenly Father? At a practical level, the J.I. Packer quote at the very beginning, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Now I want you to see this, how glorious this is. There is the work of the Holy Spirit in us crying out to our Heavenly Father and, according to John 16 and 14, the work of the Holy Spirit is point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this, there's this working of the Holy Spirit, the Son, and God the Father. There is this unity that's happening. Theologians call this the Trinitarian unity of the work of God in salvation. God the Father sends the Son. God the Son is born of a woman under the law. God the Father sends the Spirit into our hearts. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together as one God, bringing us into His family. And you see this right here in this passage. God the Father loving us. God the Son dying for us, redeeming us. And God the Holy Spirit being within us, pointing us back, crying out, Abba, Father, the God of the universe at work together to save us. And there are consequences of being a son. Really good consequences. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, oh, that's verse 29 in chapter 3, sorry. Verse 7 is what you're supposed to look at. I'm, in my notes it says 29 from the last chapter. Sorry, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So you are, this is a definitive statement, you're no longer a slave, you are a son. A statement of identity. Now there, there's a question here that comes up to my mind, because when we hear this, we are not slaves anymore. I, I have to wonder, in what way are we not slaves? Because Paul identifies himself as a slave of Christ in Philippians and in the book of Titus. James also does this, and Jude, Jesus' brother, does this as well. They call themselves slaves to their master, Jesus. There is some sense in which we are always slaves to Jesus. And by the way, if you want to hear the most woke statement ever, I am a joyful and willing slave of a Middle Eastern man. So is that woke or not woke? Joyful slavery, not woke, of a Middle Eastern man. Oh, very woke. White guy, slave to the... Middle Eastern guy. And there's a joy in following our master, Jesus, as his servants. But this is a definitive statement, so it means something. So there is in some way that we are no longer slaves at all, and we are sons of God. We are no longer slaves to the law. In this context, we remember back to what we were enslaved to. We were slaves in bondage to the law of God. Chained. Held down. Not free. Can't get out. Can't move. Trapped. And because of what Jesus did for us, coming, being born under the law, and walking in liberty, and redeeming us, and breaking those chains, and setting us free, setting us up as children of God, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we are no longer under that bondage as slaves. We don't walk in the con condemning nature of the law. We don't live that way anymore. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Do not, whatever you do, ever confuse the conviction of the Holy Spirit with the bondage of the law. You have been set free from that, and you are no longer a slave. You are a slave of your master Jesus, but you are not a slave to the law. And that is a big difference. Now, definitively, you are a son of God. The only way that anyone could ever be a slave of Christ is to be a son or a child of God. And now our primary identity, and I want you to hear this, there are many identities given to the Christian in the New Testament. And there's glory in each of them. You, your primary identity as a believer, as a Christian, your primary identity, who are you? I'm a child of God. It's who I am. I belong to God. He's mine. I am his. He's got a hold on me. And I belong to the God of the universe. I am a child of God. Jesus, the son of God, came to die in the place of sinners to make us children of God. So that's who I am. Who are you, Jared? I'm a child of God. And then below that, below that are all these other identities. You see this, we're a a sheep, clay. You see all these identities throughout the New Testament. But our chief and first identity needs to be, we need to settle this right now, before you are anything else, you are a child of God. That's who you are. You belong to God. You have a heavenly father who loves you and who's in charge of everything and he is for you. If that's never been passed ear to ear and sunk down to your heart, today's your day. Today's your day. And maybe just like J.I. Packer, you, you say, I've known God the judge, the sovereign God of the universe, but this experience of the sovereign father, that's new to me. There's glory in it. This isn't made up stuff. It's right here. It's right here. Because we are children of God, we follow Jesus. So the question I have for you today, if you're a non-believer in this room, do you know God as Father? And the question is answered very easily. If you're a non-Christian, you do not. You don't. You do not have God as Father. And you are under His law. And He is right, holy, and good, and just. And He is just to condemn you under that law. And you have sinned against Him. And whether you realize it or not, you are in His mercy right now. The fact that He's letting you live another day. He does not have to let you live another day. He could bring... His judgment upon you right now and be totally just. And um, can, Levi, can you go turn that water off? Because I forgot to turn the water off to the... You did? Okay. Good. Sorry, I was thinking the... Bap, it's like a critical moment in the sermon, too, and I'm thinking about the baptism. Rabbit. Chasing rabbits. And he'll be right and good because you're a lawbreaker. You're a lawbreaker. And justice would be God giving you what you deserve. And you can argue with that and say, I don't believe that. It's just a matter of time because you will believe that. 
But today, you can be justified. You can get right with God today. And you can turn from your selfishness, or you can turn from your self-salvation project. And you can say, God, I have sinned against you. I'm wrong. And you can look to Christ and away from yourself say, God, forgive me. There's no magic formula. There's no magic words. God, forgive me. Save me. And he will. And for all those that have been justified, you have this promise that you're not just forgiven, you also are welcomed into the family of God, full of brothers and sisters who have been equally redeemed and set free and changed. You have a seat in the house of God. You have the God of the universe as your father, and he is for you, and he is with you, and he is not going anywhere. He has sent the Holy Spirit into us that we would live as new creations in Christ Jesus. That can happen for you today. Stop running from God. For the believer, maybe you've not thought about adoption, or maybe it's just this thing that's just out there. And it fe- like this is not like a this this is for every single Christian the experience of God, the fatherhood of God. And I, I don't want you to think that it's just like no, nah, it's not really for every every Christian or it's something that's just far out there or ethereal. No, there is something to this experiencing the fatherhood of God, where we cry out from the inside out, Father, you're mine, I'm yours. And if all you've known is God the judge, if all you've known, and that's glorious, God that saved you through justification, but you've not understood that you're his child now, then the invitation is just to enjoy that gift. You are a child of God. You are his today. It's experimental. We experience it. Do you sense the Holy Spirit at work in you? Because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. There's joy for each of us. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would lead and guide this time. Holy Spirit, you are so much better at connecting dots than I am. And I pray that you would do your work right now. That you would help us. I thank you that we are, by your grace, your children. And it's a privilege that we enjoy that no non-Christian will ever enjoy. God, I pray that our Christian life would be alive and full and rich. That it wouldn't be static, stale, and boring. Not asking for thrill to thrill, but moment by moment living in your presence, knowing that even Tuesdays, Wednesdays, a normal day, I'm doing work for my Father who's in heaven and he sees me. My labor is not in vain. He loves me enough to discipline me as his son, not in a putative manner, not in anger, because that was exhausted, the cross of Christ. So he disciplines me and trains me up, and I'm thankful for a Heavenly Father who disciplines me and trains me up, builds me up through difficulty, through joy. Holy Spirit, just lead us right now. I trust that you're going to. If there's anybody here that does not know you, I pray that you would supernaturally grant them repentance and break their chains and deliver them not just from Egypt, but from their bondage of sin right now. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that you will.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.